Uh, Today we're going to be in John chapter 3. If you want to get there, I'm going to be reading in the ESV, and we're going to be reading from John uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through through verse 21. And we're looking at arguably one of the most famous texts, if not the most famous uh, passage of Scripture um, of all time. Okay? So let me preface this by saying, uh, preface the Scripture by saying, it's famous for a reason, right? It's, it's viral for a reason because it is the very core of the entire Christian belief, right? Everything we believe is, is hinged upon the truth that is, is uh, taught in these scriptures. So when we look at this, don't glaze over and go, oh, I've heard this story. I've heard it preached multiple different ways. I've heard it taught many times throughout my life. I want you to look at it and say, Lord, um, show me something new here by your Holy Spirit. Convict me of something that I maybe have missed before. Look at this in a fresh and new way. Don't um, just kind of glaze over because it's a passage that maybe you've heard many times. Amen? Okay, we'll read it and then we'll pray. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is, all, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you gave us your only Son, 
Lord, that is, that is amazing. So that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. God, help us understand this passage and the, this truth um, in a more deep way, a more spiritual understanding that we wouldn't be caught up on the physical, but truly understand the spiritual significance of this passage. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts to the truth that is here. God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to anoint me to preach in a way that is glorifying and honoring to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we have this passage. We read uh, the whole passage, long passage here, and there's a lot that we're going we're gonna to kind of take a look at. Um, how many of you have heard this passage since you were a, a young child? How many of you? Okay. So most of you have heard this passage maybe since you were a, a young kid or something, if you grew up in the church. Maybe some of you, all of this is new to you. Well, this passage right here is v- the very hinge um, that our entire faith is, is based upon, that swings upon. Now, when you look at this, we got this boy, uh, Nicodemus. I like to call him Nicky D. Nicky D. Like, if we were friends, I would call him Nicky D. Uh, so we're going to call him Nicky D, okay, in this, in this sermon. Now, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were this grassroot, hard-right, ultra-conservative Jewish movement that's focus was on religious purity. They were the loudest and most influential voices in the Jewish faith at the time. So we got this boy, Nicky D. He's a Pharisee. And we find um, that normally in the Gospels, we see the Pharisees are opposing Jesus. They're against him. They're scared of the influence that he's having. They're uh, cautious about the things he's teaching. They're calling him a heretic. Sometimes they're wanting to kill him. So most of the time we see the Pharisees are opposed to Jesus. But we got Nicky D here who is, it's funny to say, Nicky D. Say Nicky D. Nikki D. Melissa hates it when pastors say, make you say stuff in sermons. And that's why she said that the other day when we were listening to a sermon. <laughs> then I was like, I'm going to do it today. Okay. So anyways, uh, that's what marriage is. Okay. Uh, so Nikki D is coming though, and he's a Pharisee who are normally opposed to Jesus, but he's coming and he, he seems genuinely interested or genuinely curious about Jesus. Right? So we see here, um, verse one and two. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So as a Pharisee, he's coming and he's saying some pretty amazing things here. He's calling him a teacher, right? He's showing him the respect. And he's also saying that no one can do the things that you're doing unless they are from God. So he's recognizing him as what? One, a teacher, and two, that he's from God. Wow. Sounds like this dude's a Christian, doesn't it? Sounds like homeboys already got it all together. Nikki D is ready. But Jesus, uh, you know, the way he replies is, is interesting. Jesus answered him, and, and, and he's not even asking a question. Nicodemus, Nikki D is making a statement. You are a teacher. You are from God. What else does he need to know? He should just be, be a disciple right then. Jesus, in my opinion, should have replied, great, follow me. Right? 
Wouldn't you have thought that's what he would have said? You recognize me as rabbi. You called, you said that I'm from God, so follow me. But Jesus doesn't reply that way. John uh, 3, 3 says, Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? Why, why would Jesus just jump into some weird thing about spiritual birth? Nicky D's already got it, calling him teacher. He's, from, he's saying he's from God. But Jesus is like, no, hey, there's something you're missing here. Something you're missing here. Jesus always sees the question behind the question. Jesus always sees the heart behind the statements that are being made. And for Nicodemus, Jesus sees that he's caught up on works. And even though he's calling him rabbi and saying he's sent from God, Nicodemus still doesn't fully get it. He doesn't fully get what Jesus is all about, the new birth, about new life what Jesus' ministry was all about. So Jesus says to him, hey, truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever Jesus says truly, truly, it means like listen up, right? Because he's like doubling down, not just true, but double true. Listen up. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because this is the question that he had. Nicodemus is a good man. He's a religiously pure man. He's a religiously influential man. Many people would have looked at his life and said, that's a man of faith. That's a man of God. That's a man who's got it figured out. But Nicodemus, in his heart, is wondering, am I going to go to heaven? Am I doing enough? Am I all right? Am I impressing God? Does God like me? Does God love me? Those are the questions that are in Nicodemus' heart. So Jesus says to him, hey, you're not going to heaven unless you're born again. He goes right to the root of everything that Nicodemus is thinking, wondering, questioning. He goes right to it and says this. And then Nicodemus, verse 4, says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus replied, Don't make things weird, dude. (laughs) Right? Like, Jesus, like, why do you got to make it weird? That's what I would have (laughs) said. No, Nicodemus, what are you talking about? Why are you being weird? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, he's doubling down again. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. First off, Jesus is saying, hey, you're thinking physical. Stop thinking physical. This is a spiritual birth that I'm talking about. Now, he says water and spirit. And there's a lot of, you know, theologians uh, that debate this. What is water and spirit? Some have said, well, water is baptism. So if you're not baptized, you're not going to heaven. That is, of course, not what Scripture teaches. Uh, Baptism is a step of obedience, but it's not for salvation. Salvation is through faith, um, you know, by grace alone, not by your baptism. So it's not that. Some are saying that it's physical birth. Water is physical birth, right? So uh, you need to be born Physically, you know, in the water, the womb, and then spiritually is, is the word you, you get spiritual birth and you get to go to heaven. Uh, I, they debate over that. There's also some think that water here is representing the word of God, and I don't really know why they think that. I think that water in Scripture most of the time represents the spirit and life. I think that these are not two separate births that Jesus is talking about, but one. 
He's saying them as synonyms, water and spirit. They're the same thing. This is one birth, the spiritual birth of water and spirit, because water most often in Scripture means uh, or represents the spirit of life, life-giving water uh, that comes from the spirit. That's what I believe. If you, if you disagree, feel free. So Jesus says this to him. You've got to be born of the spirit. You have to have a spiritual rebirth. And then Jesus continues, and he says, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. This verse is oftentimes used to explain the movement of the spirit, which that is fine, right? We, oh, we don't know. It's like, the spirit's like wind and so forth. But in the context here, Jesus is saying that the way the spirit works in salvation is not something that can be predicted or controlled but you know it when you see it. There's no formula for it necessarily, right? Like you can preach the same message to two different people. One will receive and one won't. The way that the spirit works in, in, in salvation is unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. Yet you know it when you see it. You don't know where the wind is coming from or where it goes or how it works. But you know when it's there right? You know when it's windy. You don't know much else about wind, but you know when it's windy. And he's saying when it comes to this new birth, when it comes to being born again, you can't control it or predict it or or fully understand it, but you know it when you see it. You can see people's lives being transformed. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? It is possible here that Jesus phrasing, saying, are you the the teacher of Israel, that Nicodemus may have been like the lead teacher of the Pharisees. Not just a Pharisee, not just a teacher. It It is likely that Nicodemus, our boy, Nicky D., is the most influential religious person in all of the land. Think about that. So Jesus is like, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't get what I'm saying? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says, Nikki D., you really don't get it? Like, are you really the teacher of Israel? Are you really the most influential religious person in our Jewish faith, and yet you don't know what I'm talking about? Almost seems like Jesus is being a little like, come on, dude, really? You don't see it? Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Old Testament? Have you, do you really not see these things? He's saying, hey, like, if I'm telling you just simple earthly things, how are you going to understand even more heavenly things? And then he's saying that 
No one has seen heaven except for him. He's saying, I'm from heaven. But Jesus then references all the way back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, to a story that Nikki D would have known, which is that when we did a, I did a sermon on this passage of several months back called Snakes on a Plain, right? So the Israelites were coming down and they were in this kind of valley and uh, they had been complaining to God as they often did and, and so forth. And snakes come in this valley and they start biting them and people are, are you know, get dying from it or getting sick from it. And then so God told Moses to take a serpent and, and put it on this pole and that whoever would look to it would be saved. They would not die. Jesus says, hey, that, that serpent represents the Son of Man taking on the judgment of the world so that whoever would look to him would have eternal life. And he's saying, I am that man. Jesus continues here to the most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Wow. Jesus says, hey, this message, Nicky boy, was preached throughout all of the Old Testament, all those sacrifices, we know that the Passover, we know all these other sacrifices were representations of Jesus, of the one who would come to bear the sins of the world so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. He references one specific scenario where a snake, a bronze serpent, was lifted up on a wooden pole to represent the cross where Jesus was taking on the sin of the world, becoming sin, taking our judgment, and that whoever would look to him, whoever would believe in him, would have eternal life. Something that Jesus is pointing out here that's really important for Nikki D to understand, but also for us, is that this was not a new message. This was the message all along. This was the message since they left the garden that there would be one who would come and crush the serpent, the one who would defeat sin and death, and that was Jesus Christ coming on the cross. And whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Let's read this last bit here, John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You guys, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in his, um, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. This passage is interesting to me because Jesus is saying here that those who look to Jesus, believe in Jesus, receive eternal life, and they're born again. But he says this process of being born again is messy. 
right? Because he says this process of being born again involves light shining upon your life, revealing the sin that is there. And the process of being born again is those things are washing away, right? So when you think of being born, born, like babies being born, if you don't have kids, just think back to health class. It's messy, right? It's like, people are like, it's beautiful. Ah, it's, it's okay. Okay, it's beautiful. Like once they clean everything up, like you got the baby swaddled up, okay? Yeah, I don't think it's that beautiful, honestly, right? Like it's this messy process and it involves like a light, <laughs> that the doctor brings in to shine on all the mess. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, it's just like that, Nikki D. When you're born again, the light shines in onto darkness, revealing what's there. And in the process of, of being born again, you're coming from darkness into light, but that reveals all of your mess. It reveals exactly why you needed a savior, exactly why Jesus had to die on the cross. And we should be okay with that. We should be okay with that because humans are messy. Life is messy. When we share the gospel with people who are far from God, there's going to be a mess, and that is okay. We can't just try to, like, make everything perfect all the time. It's going to be messy, but in this process, God is going to do a work of cleaning things up. Amen? And that's our entire life of being sanctified. It begins at new birth, at the moment of accepting Jesus Christ, believing in who he is, and then throughout your Christian life, God is cleaning up your mess and the light is exposing the darkness everywhere he can. Everywhere he can so that he can clean you up. I'm going to say something that at first, if you haven't heard it uh, taught very systematically, you might disagree with. Okay? But it's not. It's, It's extremely biblical. But it sounds wrong because we so often want to call it a one and done. But that's called, that's justification. So this is what I'm saying. Salvation is a process. Now, I do not mean that you are working for your salvation throughout your life, but salvation in scripture is always spoken of as a process. It says things like work out your salvation if you're in trembling. Well, I thought I was already saved. It says in the process of salvation, he is sanctifying you. There's so many passages that talk about salvation as this process. Now, that is not to say that you are not saved. It is that you are saved, but salvation is the entire process from faith, the first moment you you believe, all the way until your glorification in heaven when you are made new. This is the entirety of salvation. But what we get caught up and we call salvation most of the time is what we're speaking of as justification. Justification is what happens at the moment of confession. When you say, Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died and rose again, taking the penalty of sin that you've forgiven me and that I have new life in you. At that moment, you are justified in the heavenly realms. Jesus takes your place. God declares you innocent. But there's the process of sanctification and glorification in salvation that we are still going through. 
that you're still going through. This is all part of your salvation. That's, and if you understand that you're justified, but in the saving work of Jesus Christ, he's still cleaning you up. He's still making you new. It's, it's actually really important that you understand it because so often in American Christianity, we sell fire insurance. We sell salvation as simply like this thing you say so you don't go to hell. But salvation in Scripture, if you look at it, is the process by which God is saving you from sin, ultimately in heaven, but also day by day, he's saving you from sin. He's washing you up. He's cleaning you up. He's sanctifying you. Now, if you die today and you still got sin in your life, you're going to heaven because Jesus has taken your place. You are justified. But the process of salvation is just that. It's a process in which he's cleaning us up. He's exposing the darkness that's still there. Church, we need to recognize our need for that. You need to let him expose the light on your life. Expose the light on your mess. I think we sometimes want to do the exact opposite. We want to accept the fire insurance and then just go to church pretending everything's okay for the next 70 years. And that's why so much sin lives in secret in the church rather than exposed where it's supposed to be. I want to show you guys a bit more of what it should look like. Luke 19. It's also a famous story. There's like children's songs about this. Luke 19, verse 1. This is speaking of Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. That is the nicest way of saying short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also, he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we have this famous story of this short guy who climbs a tree to see what Jesus is doing. Jesus sees him climbing the tree, walks that way, says, hey, Zacchaeus, follow me to your house. It was really interesting. Follow me to your house. I want to go see your house. Let's go to your place. You're the sinner, but I'm the Savior. I'm coming to your place. So they go to his place. Zacchaeus invites his friends. They're eating with sinners. Jesus and his disciples are eating with sinners. They're eating with tax collectors. But a really interesting thing, as Jesus comes into Zacchaeus' life, literally into his home, 
Jesus, just by his presence, is exposing darkness. Because Zacchaeus' response is to confess sin. Zacchaeus confesses in defrauding people. I'm a tax collector, and I've been taking advantage of people. He says, I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor because I've been taking advantage of the poor. As a tax collector, this is what he was doing, so I'm going to give half of it away. This is repentance. And he says, and if I've been defrauding people, if I've been lying, I've been changing the books, which I have been, I'm going to restore it fourfold. Jesus comes into Zacchaeus' life and shines light on Zacchaeus' life, on his sin. And Zacchaeus begins the process of repentance and sanctification of changing things. You see, this is what Jesus wanted Nikki D to understand. You love it. Nikki D is like, hey, I, I, I think I've got it together. I don't, I'm not sure. Like, I'm the teacher of Israel. I'm influential. I've got my life put together. I'm, I'm trying my best to be religiously pure. And so he's like, hey, like, Jesus, I see you as a teacher, a man from God. Jesus looks at him. No, but you don't get it yet. You need to allow me to shine light on you. So as you're born again, all of your sin is brought to light so I can clean it up. And we see with Zacchaeus, this process is, is, is how it's done. Because when I, I see Nicodemus' statement at the beginning, as an American Christian, I think, homeboy's got it figured out. Right? Like, this is pretty much what we look from, for, uh, from people, right? To say that Jesus is a good teacher and to say that he's from God. We say that's enough. Jesus goes deeper and says, you've got to be born again in this process of this mess where I wipe away sin. Because I would have read that passage and thought Nicodemus was saved. But Jesus says he's not. He's not born again yet. You see this often, you know, with a woman at the well we'll look at shortly, but she comes and she's asking Jesus questions about them being the Messiah, and she's immediately showing signs of faith, but Jesus is calling her out on her sin. He's bringing sin to light. You see with the woman caught in adultery, which we'll read as well, she's thrown before Jesus, caught in sin, but Jesus forgives her, but he also says, go and sin no more. I'm shining light on your darkness so that you can be cleaned up, born again, and changed, made new. It's really, really uncomfortable. This is the most uncomfortable part of Christianity. The most uncomfortable part of marriage, of accountability groups, of small groups. Because we are here to help each other in this process. The Bible says, confess your sins and you will be healed. We're supposed to confess and bring sin into the light. When we do, Jesus can wash it away. And when we hide it all, a lot that can happen. 
this bringing things out into the light. He wants us to do that. This is a part of being born again. This is a part of living a spiritual life. This is a part of being sanctified and following Jesus. Today we'll be partaking of communion. And Jesus instated communion as a way for us to remember him. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He gave them the bread and the cup. And the bread represented his body, which was broken for us. The cup representing the blood that was shed for us. And we do this in remembrance of this. But Paul, the apostle, he also talks about communion and and how we should participate in it. He says, this is a moment for confession and getting your heart right with Jesus. This is a moment for allowing Jesus to shine that light on your mess. This is a moment to remember why the cross was necessary. This is a moment to remember why his body had to be broken and his blood had to be shed for your sin. So today, if you're you're a believer, if you have professed that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you believe that he died and rose again on the third day, today remember that. Remember what he did for you. And if there's unconfessed sin, sin that maybe you're still like, struggling with, and when we say struggling, what we really mean is we still like it. That's what you really mean when we say struggling, right? We still like it. Ask Jesus to shine the light on it. Confess to him. I'll ask him to wash it away again. To, to wash it away from your life today. You're not a believer. This is what salvation is all about. You can today pray a simple prayer, accepting Jesus Christ into your heart, receiving him as your savior, and he will come in. You will be justified. You will go to heaven. But he also wants you to live a life of confession, being sanctified, growing, allowing Jesus to transform you. A.W. Tozer said, those who are saved by grace are changed by grace. I really like that. You can't, Jesus says, those who love me, obey me. Right? There's, there's something that follows salvation, which is sanctification. It was something that follows justification, which is sanctification, our changing, our transformation. So this is the opportunity for all of us today to allow Jesus to transform us some more. So allow him to shine Lie on darkness some more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage that you have given us. Lord, I ask you to um, shine light on our darkness. Shine light on our sin. Lord, can we have a moment with you here where we're honest? We stop hiding things or trying to hide things like Adam and Eve or trying to run from you like Jonah. Lord, instead, would we know that you see it all and just allow you to shine the light on it, allow you to do the work of sanctifying us. Lord, I pray for those who feel stuck in something. I pray that you would give them the courage to find someone to confess to. 
whatever it may be, Lord, sometimes we get stuck in things that are blatantly obvious. Other times we're stuck in a pattern of thinking that's selfish or fearful or anxious. And we don't even see it because we haven't allowed you to shine light on it. So whatever it is, if it's a blatant, obvious sin that we can think of right now, or if it's something that has just creeped its way in, snuck its way into our heart, either way, Lord, we need your light, you to wash it away. In Jesus' name we pray.